Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Edward. And I'm Holly. We'll be your host for today's Fireside Chat. Today we are talking to Adam Edros, President and Co-CEO of edX. Prior to joining edX, Adam was a Senior Vice President at TripAdvisor and has held senior analysts and product manager positions at Nordstrom.com, Amazon.com, and the Parthenon Group. Adam holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College. Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So perhaps to start our dialogue, could you give an overview of what edX is and how are you supporting students at this weird times? Yeah, sure. So edX is uh, one of the leading uh, online learning destinations. Um, uh, we focus on higher education, right? So so not the kindergarten through 12th grade, but really university uh, and university grade sort of class education. Um, and and our, our goal is to really transform education. Uh, and we're doing that in a couple different ways. We're doing that one uh, through um, building modular stackable uh, learning experiences um, that are really trying to, I often think of it as like trying to deconstruct uh, traditional education into modular pieces, into smaller pieces um, that, that can be deployed on demand uh, at various points in people's lives. Um, but I think we're also, and, and this is a piece that um, I think people sometimes miss, is that part of our mission is also just to transform the way that online education works. So we work with top universities around the globe, um, and we're focused on the, the underlying learning science and the, and the data and the, the sort of evolution that we can help drive um, uh, to change the way online learning uh, functions. Now, Prior to February of this year, I think lots of people sort of nodded their head and were like, yeah, that's great. You know, online education, fine, uh, slow moving, eventually, sure, we get it, everything's going to move online. And I think in February of this year and, and beyond, um, suddenly everyone has woken up and realized um, that, uh, that online teaching, right, like um, delivering a lecture over Zoom is not the equivalent of online learning. And, and so I, I think what the, the unfortunate pandemic that we're living through has exposed is exposed how much opportunity there is to, to truly transform the way we learn uh, and to do that using modern technology while leveraging the, the, the quality and the um, uh, you know, incredible competency that exists in universities like University of Cambridge, right, or MIT or Harvard uh, or Dartmouth or any of these other top uh, name uh, institutions. Okay, perfect. And um, before we go to talk on more in depth about edX and what you do, from your personal perspective, having previously worked in big corporates, why did you transition into the field of online education? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, you know, I, 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 um, I certainly am somebody that's appreciated and, and benefited from, from great education um, uh, over the years. And it's, it's been an area of interest of mine for a long time. But uh, I, I really didn't set out to, to work in education per se, right? I had, I had spent, as you mentioned, I'd spent 13 years working at TripAdvisor um, after I finished my uh, MBA at Harvard. Um, and, you know, when I decided to leave TripAdvisor uh, three years ago, I had this checklist of, of what I wanted to do next. Um, and, uh, and, and sort of my checklist was basically I wanted to work on something that had a real impact in the world. Um, I, I felt very fortunate that I had uh, I had worked at TripAdvisor. I'd been there from very early days to you know when we we were a pretty massive company, and um, and it was something that you know I was just so proud of the impact we had had on the travel industry, the the, the sort of democratization of travel uh, that we'd been able to. 
um, drive. Um, so I wanted to work at a, a company that had a, an impact. I wanted to work on something that was consumer facing. I, I like building consumer products. Um, I, I had some personal goals around the role that I wanted and and the and the type of thing I wanted to do. I had previously run a product organization, but uh, but I felt like I uh, I had worked in finance at one point in my career. I'd worked in strategy consulting at one point in my career. I felt like I, there was more I could do than just product. Um, and, um, and you know, and there were a couple other minor things. And so when this uh, edX opportunity came up. It, it really hit on a lot of those things, and and that narrative about the like the democratization of an industry that can happen through the combination of you know community and software and sort of scalability is is you know a broad theme that's that I'm really passionate about. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. Um, and just to explain how we'll be structuring our talk today. Um, we'll have three different sections, firstly about the past of edX and your methodology, um, then moving on to talk about the present and the impact of COVID-19, and then on to the, your vision for the future. Sure. Um, so our first topic will be on edX's methodology, and from my understanding, there are two main functions of edX, which is firstly to teach a university-level curriculum, and also um, more career-focused, company-sponsored courses. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I would, I, I don't think we, we don't necessarily think about them as like university or career focused per se. Um, uh, so let me back up for a second and like, let, let me talk a little bit about like our target target audience, um, you know, what we, uh, what we believe the, the market uh, opportunity is, is not necessarily, you know, 18 to 24 year olds going to university or college. Um, uh, that's not to say that you know there aren't those users on the platform, but there, but but really, our our goal from our founding was to unlock the resources that existed inside of universities, inside a geographic location, um, and and expose that quality and uh, and and um, and content to a, a broader world, and so you know what ends up happening is that our users really show up and they're trying to accomplish something in their life, right? Um, now, some of them are looking for credit-backed uh, or credit-grade content and courses because they actually are trying to achieve a degree outcome, right? They're trying to get a master's degree. They're trying to get a, you know, eventually a bachelor's degree. Um, and so that credit-backing um, and, and content areas of university content are really important to them. But a lot of users are in a career and are trying to transform their economic outcome in some way, right? They're trying to get a promotion. They're trying to get a different job. They're trying to tr transition into a new industry. Um, and, and I think what they fundamentally believe is that like, there's lots of online learning uh, that's out there. Um, but uh, you know, universities, um, particularly, uh, you know, well-known, uh, highly regarded universities are a single, you know, they signal something about the content that they produce. They signal something about, um, about the capabilities that they help build, whether that is in an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or whether that's in a 50-year-old. And so um, people want university-grade education, um, even if they're coming at it from a career focused point of view. And so, the, I, you know, I think the main distinction in, a, in some of our content is, is a credit back or not. And in the case of some of our professional cer certificates, you know, the user doesn't, uh, they don't need the credit for anything. So they're, they're not interested in credit, but they're interested in certification as a means to signal to their employer or signal to a potential employer that they have a skill set or they're, you know, they're at least functionally aware of something that, um, that could be useful in their careers. It's definitely interesting to hear that, you know, your target market is not first-time college goers per se. This might be more experienced people who are searching for something else, uh, advancing, advancing their career and so on which perhaps suggests that, you know, the model, the education model that you offer would have to be slightly different with traditional university systems. And I think one of those is what you have uh, previously elaborated at the beginning, you know, yep. the way you stack and deconstruct education right. modular pieces. I think we would be keen to hear more about what is your view on how modular education should be like. And, you know, maybe you could also explain more a bit about your recent um, initiatives like micro bachelors and micro masters and how does that relate to modular education? 
Right. So, so uh, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think those things are connected, right? So, so when edX was founded and keep in mind, I wasn't there, right? I think the initial thought was like this idea of like unlocking content. Um, but, but then what it eventually, what became clear was that what users wanted was they wanted courses and, and ultimately bundles of courses that, um, that progress them along a path of skill building or competency or familiarity in a particular topic. And so, um, you know, the organizing principle for those things is the are these sort of like these modular blocks or these these stacks of content. Um, and if you really take a step back and think about it, right? Like, why do we, you know, why do we go to university for four years and kind of like cram in all of this knowledge at once without connecting it to apprenticeship or work or or anything? Now. There's a reason why you know we do that. There's lots of benefits to to uh, you know the uh, traditional university education, both social um, in terms of where it is at a time in your life from a formative standpoint. Lots of those things. It's also the most efficient way to do it, um, given the sort of capital and in particular the 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 sort of human capital constraints that have traditionally existed around education right you had to locate people in one place you had to you know you had to build 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 buildings and lecture halls you had to you know the academy in and of itself was sort of this like creation um and with technology right you can start to like chisel away pieces of that and, and ask like, what can stand alone? And so I, I go back and I, you know, again, as I said, our target isn't to like disrupt or change, you know, 18 year old uh, university experiences. But uh, I mean, I have an undergraduate degree. So my undergraduate degree is in economics and German literature, um, right? I spent the majority of my career as a product manager. Um, you know, it probably would have been pretty useful for me to have a CS degree um, at one point in my career. There was zero chance that I was going to go back to university and get a CS degree or a CS master's, right? I, I, I don't want to write software. Um, and, uh, and that would have been overkill. But it would have made a lot of sense for me to be able to, you know, what we would call a minor or, you know, or to take a small set of courses at various points in my career that would have been a bundle of things that were, that were university, again, university grade or university class learning um, that, that could have been helpful at that moment in time. And, and, and quite honestly, it was consumable at that moment of time, given everything else that I was doing, right? having a family, working full time, you know, trying to have a uh, social life, all of those types of things. So I think if you think about, you know, education, not for people coming straight out of, you know, uh, uh, secondary school, um, uh, but you think more about, uh, you know, the 65% of US adults, right? So I don't know the stat for the UK, but in the US, 65% of adults don't have a bachelor's degree, right? I mean, it's a huge number. And if you layered on top of that, the number of adults who do have a bachelor's degree but aren't working in the field that they have their degree in, um, then I think you you see that the market opportunity for sort of incremental lifelong learning as you evolve um, uh, is really big. And and to meet that, you've got to sort of like break apart these structures that have traditionally been you know containers for uh that, that were again back designed to this idea of like geographic and capital constraints um you know that's not to say that there isn't pedagogical reasons why those things are better that way um but you can start to have this like this idea of like modularizing and making learning this sort of like ongoing continuous uh, thing that you do as opposed to this thing that you kind of like cram in all at once um, and then, you know, and then try to like make it through your career for 25 years afterwards. I totally hear the point of uh, giving um, flexibility and opportunity for people beyond the university age. Because in this era, we need to constantly up, upgrade our skills uh, to yep. adapt to the changing environment. Uh, recently, I read a very interesting book by a professor from Harvard uh, Business School uh, to talk about the strategy of HBS, online education. Yep. They took a very, very different approach 
they actually offer paid courses to existing campus students to start with. So my question for um, maybe for you and for us to think about is, to which degree do you believe online education should be for profit versus um, by public sector? Yeah. Yeah, we get this question a lot. I mean, certainly edX is a nonprofit, right? There are other folks in the or in the world that are for profit. And I, I think people feel really strongly about this. Now, I, I'm going to caveat this by saying, like, uh, I, uh, I'm a capitalist at heart, right? I have an <laughs> MBA from Harvard Business School. Um, uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a red herring, to be honest, right? I, I think that the, the argument about for-profit, not-for-profit is a proxy for a discussion about uh, alignment with, with sort of good pedagogical or academic um, principles and, um, and sort of alignment with the best interests of learners. Um, um, and, and what I mean by that is that like, I don't think there's any magic my personal view, like I don't think there's any magic to nonprofit status, right? Um, in fact, I think there's some things that you know it, that are complicated by that, right? Like I think it, I think it, uh, you know, we were talking ahead of time, like the the sign that's on the back of my wall, right? Like you know, get it done, right? I I think that the in in nonprofit environments, sometimes there's this like hesitancy to do the thing that is ultimately kind of good for everybody, right? Whether it's good for the bottom line, good for users, good for teachers. Um, I, I often tell our organization, like our goal as a nonprofit is not to be unprofitable and it's not to like land the plane, like right on the pinhead of, you know, teetering between profit and nonprofit, right? It's actually to be very profitable and then ask the question, what should we do with all those profits to further our mission? So, so I think that the nonprofit piece is, is less important than really mission alignment and, and asking, are we mission aligned with, uh, with our partners, right? So at the end of the day, you know, what does Cambridge care about? What does Oxford care about? What does Harvard and MIT care about? They care about the quality of pedagogy, right? They actually care about completion rates and learners learning, right? Um, I, I, I think there's something amazing about uh, um, university professors in like what really drives them at the end of the day is this like passion for learning and, and exploration and discovery um, of, of ideas and concepts, right? Um, and so the university environment is like tenure and all these things are created to foster that. Um, and as long as we're mission aligned, then I think the for-profit, non-profit thing really shouldn't matter. Now, does it matter? Maybe, but like, should it matter? No. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, we will talk more about sort of the structure of um, ed tech later and the non-profit and business model that you have. Um, but just to go back to the methodology of edX, um, other than the modular approach, um, another pillar that you have to your approach is active learning. Yep. Um, and so if we could just focus in a bit more on the teaching methods, you've spoken a lot already about sort of focusing on the impact for your students. And so how do edX's lectures and active learning impact the overall learning experience? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that's really interesting um, about online education, right? And we're 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 fortunate to have partners who um, who who are actively sort of embedding learning science into their course development and using that to inform their course development, right? So there's been this amazing research that's been done using the edX platform or platforms, uh, you know, like edX. Um, that shows that like, you know, in, in retrospect, it all makes sense, right? But like going to an hour long lecture, you know, if you think of like sort of your short term memory as being this bucket that fills up, right? It's basically full in seven minutes. Um, and so if you're in an hour long lecture, the next 53 minutes, like there's diminishing returns to your ability to retain uh, and, and, and really sort of like assimilate that information, like those learnings. So it's a very inefficient learning environment. Um, 
you know, again, it, it's a very efficient um, capital environment, right, for gathering students um, and for transmitting information. Um, at least it was. Um, but what's a much more efficient active learning model, right, is to break that lecture up into small pieces and to interleave assessments or, um, or kind of like recall exercises in between like pockets of, of whether, whether it's lecture or material dissemination. Um, and again, you know, I'm not an academic and I'm not a learning science expert. I'm, 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 I'm just telling you uh, what I know. But, um, um, but I think like it, it makes complete sense, right? And, and there's been lots and lots of studies that show like, why wouldn't you want to watch that lecture um, at night and, and have all the benefit of, hey, I'm really stuck on this thing. Let me go back and replay it. Let me play it, you know, a second time. Let me try to do the exercises. Let me see whether I'm really gather, like whether I can do that exercise before I move on. Um, and then, you know, here's the places I'm stuck. And can I use that hour long time in something like a breakout or a workshop or a small lab um, to go deep on something that's just not making sense to me? Um, or to take that, you know, shared body of knowledge and then use that to build upon uh, a deeper understanding around like, why is that important or, or what does that mean? So I think that, you know, what you're seeing is um, what's pretty common in software, right? It, what's pretty common in internet businesses, which is this idea of like experimentation driving optimization. Now I'll add one more thing that I think tend, I tend to think is pretty cool, which is this idea that like, edX is is an open source software platform right so basically um, you know anyone in the world can build on our software platform and much of the platform whether it's assessment types have been built by the community what I think is really cool about this is the idea that like you know in some ways you're crowdsourcing pedagogy um, now, you know, th there are people who have spent their entire life focused on pedagogy and, and refining pedagogy by category, by, you know, topic area. All that's great. Um, and, and, and we should trust their knowledge and their instincts and that type of thing. But, um, you know, I can tell you as a product manager, the number of times that I've run an experiment where I was sure I knew what the outcome was going to be. Um, right, where I had a hypothesis about what was driving behavior, and then was surprised to find out that, you know, at scale, users acted very differently than, uh, than what I predicted. And I think that that, you know, why shouldn't we believe that that's also true of education? I think that comment on crowdsourcing predictor is very interesting. And I have to admit that this is the first time I've heard of that term. And definitely a food for thought for all of us. Um, I think what's the other thing that we find very interesting from edX is the fact that, I mean, we've spoken a lot about um, how universities offer their courses on the platform, but on the other side, we also see a lot of big companies jumping in and right. you know, offering their courses online. Do you have any comments on perhaps what are some of the incentives for these companies to offer their courses online and wouldn't uh, how would it differ from them, you know, offering their own uh, courses internally. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a couple things. Um, so, so certainly, you know, let's start with the most basic, which is, uh, you know, it's it, it is actually fairly controversial to have, you know, Microsoft or Google or Amazon or ARM uh, just recently joined edX. Um, right, they make software uh, for chips, uh, chip development. Um, you know, to have companies that are coming online to do education. Um, and, and it creates some friction because, you know, their, their sort of um, uh, connection to pedagogy may not be sort of like as academic as institutions. But, um, you know, I think the thing that everybody does recognize is that they're also pretty focused on Building real-world skills, right, and uh, and and familiarity with real-world tools that people use every day. So there's got to be some middle ground there, right? Like you know, uh, Edward, you, you were telling me you're you're studying AI, if I if right. So so I think there's there's room for 
um, both uh, academic, like fundamental understanding of, of how, what knowledge of AI is, right? Like the math and the computer science behind it and the statistics behind it and all of these, the, you know, all of these things. And then some room for pragmatic, like, hey, do you want to learn how to use Google's TensorFlow? And, and you know, that's a tool that you're going to use going forward. You, you know, let's build some familiarity with it. And some of that's going to be to build kind of like real world experience, even if you ultimately want to be an academic, right? Real world experience on how AI is being deployed or used in the world. Um, uh, and some of that would be like, you know, what we talked about briefly before, which is this idea of like signaling to uh, the the um, the world, right? Like the skills you have, and therefore the jobs that you can do. Uh, and I think that there's a there's room for both of those things. I, I think the one thing we're careful about is it's very easy, and I think uh, over the last twenty plus years of of sort of um, you know the internet first and second boom. Um, I, I think there's plenty of examples where there, you can end up with this kind of like race to the lowest common denominator of online education, right? Like if the goal is just to um, um, assess skills, like how good are you at Excel on a scale of one to 10? How good are you at, you know, uh, whatever the tool of the day is on a, you know, um, I without a deeper understanding of like, what's the underlying like knowledge base and skill set that drives your familiarity with that tool and your ability to use that tool to get a job done, then I think like what you end up with is like these very shallow like um, uh, education experiences. And, and that's why, you know, our university partners and the, and, and the corporate partners that we have, there's a high bar for the quality ultimately that they have to produce to be on the platform. Okay, thank you for the overview of how edX is structured and what they're prioritizing at the moment. That was really interesting. Um, but now we might move on to talk about the impact of COVID-19. Um, I think it'd be really interesting for us as students at the moment to understand to what extent the demand has changed for online courses and also whether there's been a significant shift in the type of person who are using edX's services and their reasons for doing so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the pandemic has been a huge tailwind for online education, um, as you can imagine, right? Um, in the in the very beginning of the pandemic, out of necessity, right? So, like, lots of students um, coming online. Um, quite honestly, lots of adults who suddenly had free time um, and uh, and and you know were able to go explore and try new things. So, you know, in the early part of the pandemic. Uh, us and, and other online providers, we're seeing, you know, 5X, 6X, our normal traffic on any given day. Um, you know, we're not, uh, that number is not at 5X or 6X anymore, but it still is elevated year on year. It's it certainly um, is, is higher and it's continuing to be higher. And I think a big part of that is um, um, uh, the adoption curve for online education, both by users, by learners, and by educators, has been pulled forward probably three years, easily three years, right? Um, uh, I mean, you all have had the experience of, of online learning, and, and you've probably had some pretty mixed experiences of, uh, of the quality of that. Um, you know, and in some ways, we're probably going to have a trough at some point in the future where you know, we even are seeing this a little bit right now, right? Like people are just tired of uh, of online learning, of Zoom, of, of all of these things. Um, and um, and and I think like, but but I I think independent of that, what people have realized is like you can learn a lot online. It is very flexible, right? You can get these incredible experiences and and um, from incredible universities uh, on demand. And, and I think that's going to change the way people approach this idea of like what the future of learning looks like for, you know, certainly for their career um, uh, minded pursuits. Now for universities, I think what it's exposed is um, risk for universities, right? Of not having online infrastructure, not having familiarity with good instructional design, right? That, you know, as I said before, like the Delta between, um, between good online classes and bad online classes is pretty big. 
Um, and, and so I think more and more what we're seeing is universities who have tried online learning now and realize that they have to get better at it and are trying to figure out how to do that. Interesting that you mentioned universities. Um, do you see anything that, any changes from the supply side? I mean, we've been talking about the demand side. Um, did professors or academics do anything differently during this period? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, good and bad, right? Like the good part is I think there, there have been a number of um, professors and academics who out of have basically been forced out of necessity to try online learning and have been pleasantly surprised with, um, you know, parts of it, right? They're surprised at the level of engagement. They're surprised at um, the ability of students to consume information and, and, and actually learn the material. Um, I think they, on the negative side, I think they, um, you, you know, professors have the same level of online fatigue that we all do, right? And so um, they're having to learn new systems. Um, you know, in some cases, they're having to learn multiple new systems, and that's not great. Um, so, uh, um, you know, and it, and it feels like extra workload and, and, and sort of unfamiliar territory for a lot of them. Um, you know, humans don't like change, right? Like in, in general. And, and so I think we're going to have to um, help universities and, and faculty uh, um, to adopt to new, you know, new ways of teaching and new, new um, uh, platforms. But, I, but I, I truly believe that when, when that happens, people are going to realize that, you know, we're not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that the future of education is 100% online. Um, but, but I do think it will be a significant portion of how people learn going forward. Um, and, and we need, it's an opportunity to like really rethink the whole system and, and, and the, the role that online plays in, uh, you know, in the sort of broader education landscape. Yeah, that's true. And um, could you maybe elaborate a bit more? You were talking about earlier um, Zoom fatigue, which I'm sure we've all experienced over these last few months. Um, just a bit more on how technologically ready we are for this um, influx and demand for online education um, and any other potential barriers that edX have encountered during this time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, um, so there's two big things I would, I would talk about. One is, um, I mean, one is that like building a good online class is takes work. Um, and, and there are very talented, you know, there's a whole class of, of people that do this, right? Instructional designers that think about, um, you know, this trend, like to talk about it in sort of, you know, very um, general terms, right? You know, going from uh, a faculty member that lectures, right? And they've been doing a lecture in calculus for 10 years, right? So they they know what they're going to teach on the first Monday. They know what they're going to teach on the second Monday. Uh, you know, they know the arc of that class really well to transforming that into an online learning experience that is effective for learners, you know, is a chunk of work. And, and there are many schools that are just starting to build that muscle, let alone the muscles of distribution, um, you know, wrestling with the sort of, let's call them strategic questions of, you know, does Cambridge want to open up its education uh, or, you know, or Harvard or MIT, do they want to open up their education and, and degrees credit to hundreds of thousands of people? You know, what does that mean in terms of brand, in terms of consistency, in terms of all these types of things, right? So, so I think that there's lots of questions to be wrestled with. And then you get to some like deeper fundamental questions, which is, how many universities are there in the world? Like, you know, I think there might be like 35 or 40,000 universities in the world, right? Every single one of them, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna talk in broad brushes here, right? Let's call it 80% of them. 80% of them teach first year calculus. Why, right? Like, why, why do we recreate first year calculus every single year? Um, uh, you know, that feels like something that's pretty well established. And, and you could take sort of a canonical online calculus course that was really well produced, distribute that, right? And, and then teach against that. And I think that that's, you know, that just raises all kinds of interesting questions, right? Good and bad. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not here to argue 
any one particular view on this, but I think like certainly it's going to raise questions about faculty and job security and uh, uh, you know the role of of uh, that the, the ratio of tenured faculty to junior faculty like it just it's going to bring up all of these business questions that are connected to human questions that I don't think we have good answers for. And, and, but, you know, what's interesting to me, again, taking a step back as the business person in the room, how is this any different than the conversation we're having about automation and manufacturing, right? Um, and the role that that, and the impact that that is gonna have on the average worker. Um, and so, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm I'm simply saying uh, that we should recognize that like software, you know, I, I think it's Mark Andreessen that said it, right? It's like software is eating the world. And and so why is education immune from that trend? Um, now, the, we can sit here and like decry this terrible future or we can think about like, how do we leverage it to do, do more meaningful things and add more value to the hour we spend. And so I'm gonna go off on like one, uh, one quick tangent here, which is like, for me, when I think about this, like we are in the, in the early adoption of online education, what we've mostly done is drop the cost, right? We've dropped the cost of taking a class online. We've dropped the cost of having to relocate physically to a place. We've dropped the cost of giving up you know, four years of your life or two years of your life to pursue a degree of some form or, or education of some form. It's all cost cutting, right? Um, but, you know, that, that hits a limit at some point. It's unsustainable at some point. It's unsustainable for the manufacturers, for the producers at some point. Um, and so the real opportunity here is to increase the efficacy, right? To make every hour and dollar of education worth more than it previously was. And I and, I, and that's where I see the promise of software and technology is to like really transform the efficacy of education, not the cost of education. No, or not just the cost of education. <laughs> yeah, that idea of economies of scale definitely is something that's very interesting. And I mean, th th it seems like there's a lot of parallel going on between education and software from, from the way you convey things. And I also like your idea of, you know, shipping and distributing pre-built courses. Think of this as Docker containers that you distribute to people. Very interesting idea instead and sounds very futuristic. And perhaps <laughs> this would be a good transition to our final topic of the day, which is sure. your vision and, and the future of education. I mean, now people are starting to talk about the new normal, hopefully the pandemic is ending well sooner than later. What do you think will happen in the new normal in terms of online learning and maybe omni-channel approaches? combining both offline and online learning? Yeah, it's so hard to say, right? I mean, you know, and again, I think we, we oftentimes go directly to sort of thinking about undergraduates or graduate students, right? Um, which I, I just think is a small population in the grand scheme of things. Um, because it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, we all think about, I mean, you're all significantly younger than me, right? But like, it's hard for me to reimagine my college experience as being fully online, right? So I can, you know, I can be a complete hypocrite and say like, it's, yeah, yeah, that's the future, like all online education uh, or modular education. But then I think back like, would I have done that when I was 18? Or do I think that would have been good for me at 18? Yeah, I don't know, right? I have a 17 year old son who's going to college next year in theory, um, you know, and I can see the struggle there. Like what, what would I want for him? So you know, what do I think the future is? I, I mean, I think let's start with, again, this idea of like the world pre-pandemic, the conversation I was having most often with people was the, the role uh, that automation was going to play in transforming every industry, right? Both taking out jobs that, um, that were not going to be value add relative to software, um, and, um, and speeding up the transformation of every industry. And, and so I think the role, of, like if we just start there, right, the role of education in its ability to upskill and reskill workers in sort of a just-in-time uh, way, I think is the biggest opportunity in front of us. Um, and what that's going to take is it's going to take 
um, industry in particular, you know, maybe government, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of government's ability to, to do this. Um, it's going to take industry that is going to like almost have this moral obligation to think about their workforce as a community, right? And, and back at the beginning, when we first started talking, I talked about, you know, the power of community. It's something I, I really, um, I learned in my time at TripAdvisor was that like, when you think about um, a transformation of an entire industry, right? The, the world of hotels used to be dominated by big chains, right? And the reason why was because like, when you travel the world, um, um, you know, if, if you weren't a sort of student backpacker, you know, with, with high price sensitivity, right? Then what you wanted was consistency. And, and if you went to a Marriott in, anywhere in the world, you knew 90% of the quality you were going to get, right? If you went to the Four Seasons anywhere in the world, you knew the quality you were going to get. And so that, that, that signaling mechanism, that quality meant something and was necessary given um, the sort of like broad distribution of opportunity in, in the travel industry. And what someone like TripAdvisor did, and I think this is really relevant for education as well, is to like democratize that in a way that quality rose independent of these like signals, right? I'm not saying that, you know, Cambridge or Harvard or MIT is not going to have signaling value in the future. What I'm saying is like, I think users will be able to pierce uh, that broad brush signaling value and realize that like, to put it in travel terms, hey, when I go to uh, London, you know, I, 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 I can stay at the Marriott. I know the Marriott's good. It's great. But there's tons and tons of, you know, boutique hotels that are very focused on me as a traveler and the type of traveler I am um, that are going to meet my needs better. And I think that that's the opportunity for education is to like really ask the question of like, what do you need right now uh, as a learner? Um, what level are you at? What are you trying to accomplish? What's the arc of your um, education experience? And how can we best need that? And I think that companies in a lot of way are going to have this moral responsibility to look at their workforce and the community around their workforce, right? The, the families and the, and, the, and the jobs that come from that community and ask, how do we not hollow out our communities as, uh, as you know, competition and markets evolve in a way that we can build and retain an incredible workforce. And, and education is going to be a huge part of that. It's always been a huge part of that. Um, so I think we're going to see this like, transformation of like leveraging education to be competitive in industry, which is going to drive economic value. I actually know that's really interesting. And I think for us, from a technological point of view, we are very interested in your personalized approach to education. Um, so if you could just talk a bit more about how AI can be used for that purpose and also how that can be adapted from STEM courses to also work for humanities and social sciences. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the holy grail in education, at least for, you know, online education has always been this idea of like adaptive learning, right? That like, you know, my learning would be personalized relative to your learning and the material that, you know, we're learning. I'm a little bit of a skeptic, right? Um, from the standpoint of like, I just, again, past experience is that personalization is really hard to get right. Um, and, and quite honestly, this is, you know, in the, in the, in the bucket of like AB experiments where I've learned something, um, I learned this is a longer story, but I basically learned that like people don't trust personalization or what you label as personalization, right? Um, uh, for a variety of reasons, like that's a whole nother fun story. Um, so, so what's the future look like? I mean, the future looks like, again, back to this idea of efficacy, right? Um, if I already know if this course that I'm taking is nine modules long, and for whatever reason, I already know the first two modules, let me accelerate through those first two modules, right? And let me get to the place where I meet some friction. And so I think like in some ways, like I, I'm a big fan of kind of like dumb personalization, right? Which is to say like, it doesn't have to be truly like, um, you know, this unique uh, random walk through material that, that, um, that mine is completely different than yours. It can be the same road traveled, right? Like you and I can travel the same road from, road from point A to point B. We can just travel at different speeds. And if I can get there in four weeks and it takes you four months, fine, right? Like, 
why not why not operate that way? Which means if I can finish a master's degree in six months when it normally would take a year, why you know why is that a bad thing? Um, and so I think that there's like I just think there's opportunity before we go like really to the you know the far end of like lots of like custom personalization to to think about like ways that we could just make um, it be more efficient and effective. Another one for your vision for the future of education, maybe longer term, um, is a question that we had from the audience, which is that do you agree online learning is applicable for every stage of education? And what are your opinions about online learning for basic education, so primary and secondary level? And how can we create a digital learning future for everyone, regardless of financial limitations? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I like, as, as I said at the beginning, I'm not a, I'm not an academic and I'm not an online learning specialist. So, so you should take all of my points of view on, on sort of pedagogy with a, with a, um, with, with a grain of salt. Um, you know, what, and certainly primary and secondary school is like a very complicated um, topic for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, not, not the least of which is like equity and digital divide, right? Like that is a huge problem um, in all communities, right? And whether that shows up from an economic standpoint of people's access to internet and devices to, um, you know, to a to a cultural or um, component of like, you know, there are certainly places in the world where, uh, you know, it's frowned upon for women to get education, right? And so, so I think it's hard to solve a whole bunch of those problems. You know, that said, I think um, my perspective is like, it, it, there's without a doubt an opportunity to leverage online learning to improve educational outcomes, right? And in the US, uh, Khan Academy has been, you know, I think an incredible resource for, um, uh, for uh, classrooms around the world. Um, I think the pandemic has shown that like the value, um, uh, the, the new ideas around how to bring like learning online uh, are still coming out. That said, like, I mean, I think we've also seen um, uh, the, the value that teachers bring to primary and secondary education uh, in terms of um, engaging with students, in terms of, you know, norm and social building. And, and without a doubt, there's no doubt. I mean, I have, my kids are older, but I, you know, I have nieces and nephews who are very, very young. And, you know, the, whether they're going to fall behind because they don't go to school for a year is less of an issue than their socialization skills and, and their mental health, um, you know, needs of being around other kids and, 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 you know, play and, and, and interaction and all those kinds of things. So, so look, education, I think in some ways is, is one of those categories that's like, like healthcare, it's just so complicated because ultimately, you know, you're talking about humans and you're talking about, it's really hard to experiment, you know, it's hard to experiment, let alone like maybe unethical to experiment on humans. Um, um, so, so I think that, you know, we have to be really careful about like, how do we use technology to enhance, not to replace? Thanks, Adam. That's a very interesting explanation. You know, do you have any general advice for startup founders who are running ad tech companies? I mean, as one of the largest ad tech firms in the world, you've probably seen and they'll do a lot of things over the past nine months. Are there any lessons that any ad tech startup founder should follow? I think one of the things that I would definitely encourage, I mean, ed tech is a complicated space, right? Because it's, because, you know, of all the things we've been talking about, it's, it's not the fastest moving space. There's a lot of resistance to change. Um, you know, if, at various levels, there's different layers of complexity. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I've been preaching certainly a lot inside of uh, edX over the last few years is that like, we really need to go where our, like, where our customers are and what are and, and solve their needs. You know, our customers are learners. And while I have tons of respect uh, for our university partners and for educators, right, I, I do wish that we would focus more on learners, right? At the end of the day, um, you know, what learners want is to achieve some kind of outcome. I, 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 I mean, I can, whether my personal views align with this or, or not, I think we all wish that people were more passionate about education. I think that, you know, we're seeing sort of things in our, 
in our politics and in our environment that, you know, that point to sort of um, uh, a lack of education or a, a, a belief in, you know, in things that are not um, uh, borne out by science. So, so I certainly think the world would be a better place if the average level of education was marginally higher, right? Um, but, um, you know, education is hard. There's a reason why lots of people don't make it through university or college, right? Um, and, and it's not the thing that necessarily people want to do you know, on a, on a Monday night after they've worked all day, right. They don't, you know, they want to watch a movie or play a video game. Um, right. It, like taking a class is hard. It's work. Um, so I think we need to recognize that people are not going to be interested in learning all the time. And when they're in learning mode, it's driven by an outcome, right. They want to achieve something, whether it's they're curious and they just want to learn something new or whether it's they're trying to get a better job. Um, and I think if we start there and we work our way backwards to like, how can we help them do that in the most effective way, then it's not an attack. From my point of view, like that is not an attack on academia, right? In fact, I think it's an acknowledgement that academia has a very powerful role to play in, 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 in the world of education, in the world of transformation. But we need to like, question some of the things that we take as like set in stone about how we do things. So I'm not sure I totally answered your question, but uh, you know, I, I think if I'm an ed tech uh, working in an ed tech uh, space, I, I would just say, keep coming back to like, what do users want and why? Yeah, that, that's a very good advice. And I think, I mean, education these days are receiving a lot of spotlights. And so naturally it'd be very interesting for anyone who's running an ed tech startup to sort of learn from what Adam and, his team at edX has done well. Uh, perhaps, Adam, um, last question. Do you have any yeah. closing remarks or advice for our audience today? Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I, I, I would encourage you all to, uh, you know, you, you, you are all in an incredible position to, um, to do amazing things in life and to, to take advantage of the resources you have available to you. And so I, I, I think more than anything, I would just encourage you all to like find the thing you're deeply passionate about and, you know, and just sort of like, I, I often like just start pulling on that thread and keep pulling until, uh, until you lose interest and find something new to be passionate about. Thank you. So thanks very much to Adam for joining us today on QTalks and also everyone for dialing in today. See you all in the next QTalks. Thank you for having me.